I wish I would have known about ways to get past imposter syndrome when I was much earlier in my career. I think about all the opportunities that I let slip through my fingers because I didn't believe I was ready or had the right skill set. It's not that I would change my life right now because I'm really happy overall, but I do wish that I could go back and change out all of the negative self-talk. Hey everyone, I'm Laverne McKinnon and welcome to the Moonshot Mentor Blogcast where I break down the tools and skills you need to achieve your career dreams. I'm a coach and a certified grief recovery specialist because I learned the hard way that unprocessed career setbacks can lead to a loss of resiliency. It's critical to mourn losses in your job if you're going to hit your career goals, which is why I'm both a coach and a grief doula. Today's blogcast is something I would have shared with my younger self. It's part four in a five-part series about imposter syndrome. Sometimes I hate when people say to me, you're not alone, or you're not the only one, or it's not just you. While I appreciate the support and kindness, knowing that I'm not the only one who experiences something, say imposter syndrome, it doesn't take away the feelings of frustration, shame, and stuckness. What I want to know is how to move past it. So today's blogcast is just about that, how to combat imposter syndrome. But first, a super quick recap of the what and how of imposter syndrome. It affects people of all ages and levels of success and backgrounds. It's a feeling of being inadequate, and there's a fear of being found out. People who experience imposter syndrome hold themselves to an unattainable standard and credit their success to luck or factors outside their own competence. The five types of imposter syndrome identified by Dr. Irene Young from the Imposter Syndrome Institute are the perfectionist, the soloist, the superhuman, the expert, and the natural genius. I've identified seven tools to help you get out of the stuckness of imposter syndrome based on research and my own work with clients and students over the last decade. In order to use the tools effectively, it's important to understand the distinction between coping mechanisms and tools. The National Institute of Health defines coping as the thoughts and behaviors mobilized to manage internal and external stressful situations. Essentially, it's a tactic we use to avoid feeling bad. For example, I may, or yes, I have, binge silo on Apple rather than face my fear of making YouTube videos. It's a specific coping mechanism called procrastination. In part one of the five-part series, I talked about three coping strategies, procrastination, over-preparation, and precrastination. So I have a writer friend who over-prepares by conducting massive amounts of research, reading books and essays, interviewing relevant and non-relevant subjects and experts, watching comparable shows or movies, and talking to colleagues about their writing process. He'll then write out notes, then reluctantly a beat sheet, then way more reluctantly a detailed outline. My eldest daughter is a master precrastinator. She'll jump right into any task to get it over with as quickly as possible. Otherwise, the anxiety that she's going to be found out as a fraud is too overwhelming. Coping mechanisms can be awesome because they help us deal with stressful times in our lives. At the same time, we want to combine coping mechanisms with actual tools so that we're not just slapping a Band-Aid on a broken bone. A tool, as opposed to a coping mechanism, is a means to an end. So while a coping mechanism falls more into the avoidance category when used exclusively, a tool is a way to achieve an objective. In this case, the objective to move past imposter syndrome in order to accomplish a task at hand. For example, I use the tool of Google and a dictionary in writing this blog to ensure that my definitions were accurate. 
Some of the following seven tools are commonly known, and some of them have been adapted by me based on my work with clients and students. The first one is practice humility. Humility is freedom from pride or arrogance. I talked about this tool in part two of the series as well and gave further examples in part three of the series. For those who experience imposter syndrome, there is a contradicting set of beliefs that are black and white. For example, the soloist believes they can go it alone, and they also believe that they will be found out as being completely incapable. The humility tool is to actively recognize and accept one's strengths and limitations. Not going to lie, this takes great, great, great effort. However, in doing so, it creates pathways to move forward by embracing the hard truth that obstacles and challenges are a natural part of life. A daily affirmation along these lines has helped me. I am smart and I have a lot to learn. I am capable and I need help. I am dependable and I sometimes drop the ball. Number two, embrace duality. This is a close cousin to humility. Duality in the context of a tool to move past imposter syndrome is the acceptance that we are walking contradictions. Not to get too philosophical here, but heck, why not? Duality creates wholeness. Can't have light without dark. Can't appreciate life without death. By wholeheartedly embracing that we are both smart and have a lot to learn, we can gain access for our shortcomings and stay engaged in the task at hand. For example, the expert gets stuck when approaching a new task if they don't have 100% confidence that they know everything they need to know before they start. It's sort of like how I clean my house before my cleaning person comes in to clean it. I don't want them to know my house gets dirty. The expert thinks I either know it all or I'm a complete failure. They're also filled with what I call pre-shame. It's from the anxiety that they're going to be found out. However, when the expert truly embraces both their intelligence and their learning curve, they're able to move forward in wholeness. Number three, seek the truth. Imposter syndrome acolytes have a stadium full of gremlin voices that say they're a fraud, about to be found out, and not actually capable of anything. I'm sure your gremlins say variations of these statements, and they can sound cruel, wise, condescending, and helpful. They are so tricky, and they're going to show up in any way needed to slow or stop you. My business coach, Dallas Travers, says data over drama. Actively seek out the data that supports the statements from the gremlin. With an analytical eye, you can then assess if there's truth to the statements. If yes, then look to develop further skills or resources. If there's no truth, then keep moving forward. You're on to something good. It's important to note here that we're not looking for toxic positivity. We're looking to seek out the truth as a way to use discernment in evaluating next steps. It may be the truth that your resume is not as strong or specific as it needs to be. If you've submitted it to 20 places and you're not getting any responses, this tells you something. If you're getting responses to resume submissions and not landing a second interview, you may need to sharpen your interviewing skills. The perfectionist will submit one resume, and if it's not successful, then they will be stopped in their tracks. In working with my perfectionist clients who are actively job hunting, we've looked at current data. According to a LinkedIn study in February 2023, it takes 21 to 80 job applications to get one job offer. So sending off one resume and expecting to land the next gig is a wildly unreasonable expectation. Number four, find a mentor. 
Building off of tool number three, it greatly helps to have a mentor who can give you feedback about where your expectations are incorrect and where you might need to course correct. The mentor can also be truthful about what you're doing well and how to build on previous success. For the soloist, expert, and the natural genius, asking for help is a sure sign of failure, which is where the tools of humility and duality come in. The hard truth is that there are times when going it alone is an important step to achieving your goals, and it's only a few steps in the totality of the career marathon. Everyone needs support in different ways. Number five, be a mentor. There's nothing that gets one out of stuckness quicker than being a resource to someone else. Imposter syndrome is a manifestation of self-centeredness and selfishness that keeps us small and insignificant. When mentoring, we naturally access a development and learning experience for ourselves. We are forced to examine how we have succeeded, what has worked well, and what hasn't. In imparting the wisdom from our experiences, we naturally put a spotlight on our own strengths and needs. You know how I said in the duality tool that we are walking contradictions? Well, in being a mentor, we can also be self-centered. How is this possible? A study by Sun Microsystem shows that companies promote mentors six times more often and mentees five times more often. Number six, know your triggers. This tool has been the most helpful to me. I literally have a list of what triggers my imposter syndrome. While we've identified being given a task as a primary trigger for most people, consider getting very specific as to the types of tasks. From my list, making a YouTube video triggers my imposter syndrome. Being in a meeting where I don't know the agenda because I can't prepare. Learning the back end of new technology. The goal is to specifically know your triggers so you can trigger less frequently and process quicker. For example, when I know I'm going into a meeting without a set agenda, I can side coach myself to take deep breaths and grant myself permission to listen and take notes before I speak. If I'm asked a question I don't know the answer to, I can say, let me get back to you. Another hard truth, you can't not ever not trigger. I'm going to say that again. You can't not ever not trigger. As a recovering perfectionist, I had to learn the hard way that I could not master knowing my triggers as a way to never trigger. However, knowing that I will most likely get triggered in certain situations allows me to notice and name the gremlins and kick them in the ass. Number seven, replacing the thought replaces the feeling. There's a whole field of study called cognitive behavioral therapy in which I'm a certified practitioner. I'm very, very briefly focusing on the most high-level aspects of this particular model. Replacing the thought replaces the feeling. In a snapshot, it looks like this. There's a triggering or activating event. So something happens that prompts a crack in the belief system of the person experiencing imposter syndrome. The superhuman wears many, many hats and expects to do them all well. That's a belief that the superhuman has. One day, the superhuman accidentally double books themselves. The second step is a thought. When the event happens, it triggers a thought. The superhuman cannot accept that they have fallen short because they should seamlessly, gracefully, and easily be a parent, spouse, worker, colleague, friend, neighbor, yoga teacher, community activist, meditator, avid book reader, and gardener. So when the double booking happens, the superhuman thinks, I am a failure. Thought always leads to feeling. So this is the third step. 
the I am a failure thought leads the superhuman to feel shame, agony, despair. Now, the feeling leads to doing or not doing something. This is the fourth step, behavior. When the superhuman feels shame, agony, and despair, they work even harder to prove that they are superhuman. Working even harder will lead to more mistakes and the cycle continues. The goal here is to slow everything down as much as possible so that you can replace the thought. When the superhuman practices humility and duality, it gives an opening for the thought, I am a failure, to be replaced with a thought like, whoops, I'm wearing many hats and sometimes mistakes happen. That thought leads to a feeling of self-compassion and perhaps even curiosity about how to solve the problem of double booking. When I first learned this tool, I literally practiced writing down different thought options. Sometimes I would ask a mentor or a friend to help me brainstorm different ideas because I got so stuck on that first thought. Here's a pro tip. Knowing your triggers will help you slow your reactions down enough to find a helpful thought as opposed to a hurtful one. Do you know who Viktor Frankl is? He's the Jewish-Austrian psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor, and he said this powerful thing. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. Wow, we have covered a lot of territory in this blogcast. It's a lot to digest. You may want to bookmark this or share the blogcast with a friend so you can have an accountability partner and talk through some of these tools. All of these tools take practice. You may never reach mastery. However, in the practice, you will begin to experience a sense of freedom and expansiveness. Next week, to wrap up the series, I'm going to blow your mind. There may be no such thing as imposter syndrome, so stay tuned. I'd love to hear your thoughts about these tools, and uh, I'd love to hear any tools that you might have. So drop me a comment. You can also visit me at moonshotmentor.com or follow me on social media at moonshotmentor on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, I would so appreciate if you could subscribe. It would help me achieve my moonshot of 5,000 subscribers. Thank you so much for tuning in.